Hello, and welcome to the Narrative Matters podcast, where we hear stories about experiences with the healthcare system and the people in it that highlight the important policy issues of today. Today, I'm talking to Shivani Nazareth, a certified genetic counselor and product manager at Invite, and a visiting lecturer at the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. When Shivani's mother became ill, symptoms pointed to dementia, but potentially something more and Shivani suggested genetic testing to find the root cause of her mother's illness. The fields of genomics and precision medicine are advancing rapidly, and many older adults are interested in genetic testing to help guide medical diagnosis or treatments when possible. Yet genetic counselors are not recognized as Medicare providers and cannot bill for their services under the program, leaving older adults without private insurance having to pay for genetic counseling services themselves or forego them. In this month's Narrative Matters essay, Shivani talks about using her training as a genetic counselor and her own resources to identify the genetic root cause of her mother's changing personality. Shivani, it took years to finally understand your mother's symptoms and your mom's clinicians initially weren't on board with genetic testing. What do you wish providers knew about the benefits or potential of genetic testing? Yeah, absolutely. I I wish that providers were a little more curious about the potential use of genetic testing. I think sometimes genetics is equated with fate, and there's this kind of, you know, what's the point of knowing? Uh, But really the benefit of genomics is capturing high-risk patients early and being able to diagnose them earlier and potentially even prevent symptoms. And that's worth so much. Yeah, you mentioned that even though there was no cure for the condition you eventually identified, it was just so helpful to know for you and your family. It's true. I mean, having that diagnosis really does matter because even though there's no cure right now, it gives us a map to kind of look in the right direction and to see what clinical trials are available. And the field of genomics moves so quickly that I'm really optimistic now that you know, maybe not for my mother, but for other people in the family, including myself, uh, we could potentially see a cure in the next five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned some of the policy initiatives underway, um, including something called the Access to Genetic Counselor Services Act. Um, Can you just briefly tell us a little bit about that act and what it would mean for families in a situation like yours um, were it to pass? Sure. So the Access to Genetic Counselors Act would actually just recognize us as healthcare providers within the healthcare ecosystem, and it would allow us to bill for our services. And because we can't do that right now, there are a lot of patients and families who just cannot access the information that we can give them that could be really valuable to their health. So oftentimes what happens is, you know, patients find us in a roundabout way or after a diagnosis has been made, um, but not at the earlier stage where we could have sort of picked up family members who are at risk, given them the information about how to reduce those risks and potentially save lives. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And now here's Giovanni Nazareth reading her essay. To uncover my mother's genetic disorder, I had to lead the way. Eight months into the COVID-19 pandemic, 
I accompanied my 70-year-old mother to a routine memory exam, bringing with me a DNA test kit and a family pedigree. With my father's permission, I suggested genetic testing to home in on the cause of her dementia. Wouldn't you just be opening Pandora's box? Her neurologist inquired. 20 years of working in the field of genetics had prepared me for this question. I was under no illusion that I could reverse the course of my mother's illness, and we had matter-of-factly discussed the inevitable. We're just renting our bodies for a short period of time, she still says to me in periods of lucidity. As my mother sat in the neurologist's exam room, dutifully counting down from 100 in intervals of seven, I wished I could tell her that everything would be okay. Her memory remained largely intact, but her behavior was concerning. Conversations had become excruciatingly repetitive, and her usually immaculate home was cluttered with seemingly useless items. Old nail polish bottles, unread magazines, and empty water bottles strewn about haphazardly. Piles of clothing marked the space that used to be a guest bedroom. She seemed to become uninterested in socializing, but in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, this behavior had become normalized, if not praised. Broaching the topic of mental health was nearly impossible. Nothing is wrong with me, she insisted, while refusing to discard moldy food from her refrigerator. In truth, my mother has always been a woman of her own convictions, hard to like, easy to love. When I was younger, I did not know how to hold space for both of these feelings at once. We could go for long stretches without speaking, but we also shared meaningful dialogue about the search for our place in the world. She could be fun and energetic, often cooking my favorite meals on a whim, but also unpredictable. In bouts of anger, she would threaten to take her life. From a young age, I understood that she struggled with moods, but our immigrant family did not have the cultural vocabulary to name her illness. Time and therapy led me from a place of resentment to tolerance long before she had a formal diagnosis of anything. During visits from India, my grandmother sometimes whispered to me with caution, Your mother is just like her dad used to be, a carbon copy. The physical resemblance between them was striking. Both had bright green eyes and well-defined cheekbones. But there was more to her sentiment, of course. When my grandfather was in his early 60s, he was admitted to a care facility for difficult behavior, and he died soon after. Admitting him like that was an unusual move, given the tradition of respect for elders that permeates Indian culture. My mother remarked that putting the elderly in a home felt absurd, a custom that only existed in America. She rarely spoke of her father without tearing up, sometimes clutching the thin blue aerogram that detailed his passing. Over time, I learned that he had been orphaned at a young age. He studied law but never practiced as a lawyer. He was charming and loved poetry, but was also rigid and unreliable, prompting my grandmother to seek work to supplement the family's income. It was no coincidence that I ended up in the field of genetics. Having convinced myself that my mother had bipolar disorder and that perhaps my grandfather also had a psychiatric illness, I wondered about my own health. 
Friends of my parents commented that I was the spitting image of my mother, but I was careful to assert my own identity. To begin with, my eyes were brown, and that simple fact was enough to put some distance between us. I inherited her brutal honesty and her zest for literature and dancing. I took deliberate steps to cultivate authentic friendships and a career, both of which proved challenging for my mother. Although I managed to make it to 30 without any evidence of disease, a diagnosis of postpartum depression after the birth of my twins gave me pause. I wanted so desperately to separate my lineage from my life. Yet it's impossible to extricate ourselves from the experiences of our closest family members. They unknowingly shape us, weaving invisible threads into the tapestry of our lives. We see it in little things, such as the way we smile, and in big things, such as the way we love. I studied genetic counseling and launched a career in preventative medicine well before neurogenetics was a subspecialty. Despite my lack of training in neurology, I knew that small clues can offer large insights into a patient's health. I've had a lot of practice piecing together seemingly unrelated events. Whether or not my mother was wearing lipstick, for example, offered a window to her otherwise fickle emotional state. Lipstick was a good sign. Likewise, pedigree analysis is essentially pattern recognition. I have seen firsthand that random phenotypes can be related to one pathogenic variant in one gene. Still, it never occurred to me that my family history could be anything other than a propensity for mood disorders. During the pandemic, my mother lost interest in cooking, a skill that she typically took great pride in, and I began to worry. Everybody's routine had shifted, of course, but certain behaviors of hers began to add up. She could no longer use email, and she seemed to care less about her appearance. When you get older, you lose interest in these things, she declared. She couldn't recall certain words in English, despite having a master's degree in English literature, and she compensated for it by speaking in Hindi. In combination with the hoarding of odd objects, these symptoms felt to me like more than just dementia. Taking into account my grandfather's history, I started to suspect an inherited neurodegenerative disease. It was a careful dance to make sure that my mother's neurologist knew my clinical background, but did not feel threatened by it. When I initially suggested genetic testing, she shrugged me off with a truism that was well-intentioned but misguided. We're all going to die of something. We were both wearing masks, and it was hard to read her facial expression. Mine served to conceal my dismay as I was reminded of the perpetual disregard that continues to dominate many patient-provider relationships. I had hoped that the neurologist would have responded with curiosity. Her lack of interest propelled me into action. I read every scientific paper I could find on the link between psychiatric disease and declining executive function. I wrote to neuropsychiatrists, called genetic experts in neurology, and found clinical trials that could be of interest to our family. At the next visit, I was armed with data, a DNA test kit, consent forms, and confidence. This is going to be expensive, the neurologist stated. How do you know what gene to look for? I responded that we could start with the most likely candidate gene, C9-ORF72, 
which would cost $250 to test for, and I would pay for it out of pocket. If my mother was found to have a pathogenic variant, my sister and I would enroll in ongoing clinical trials at Columbia University that aimed to develop targeted gene therapies. My mother's siblings could be tested as well. Knowing that they had a pathogenic variant of this gene could spare them a long and expensive diagnostic odyssey. I need to understand what my mother has, what my father should expect, and what I may need to contend with in the future, I said to the neurologist. She paused for a long time. I wouldn't normally do this, she said, but it's clear that you have put a lot of thought into it. She then agreed to speak with my parents and with their consent, ordered testing. I breathed a sigh of relief. Although I was all too aware of the millions of patients diagnosed with dementia each year who do not have a genetic counselor as a daughter or personal advocate. Ten days after her blood was drawn, my mother's test revealed a hexonucleotide repeat expansion in the C9-ORF72 gene, which is associated with frontotemporal lobar degeneration, also known as FTD. Six nucleotides. GGGGCC appear in a repetitive sequence too many times, interrupting the normal function of the gene. This pathogenic variant is inherited from parent to child and results in the slow accumulation of an abnormal protein in the frontal lobe of the brain, the part that controls behavior, emotional regulation, the capacity to plan, the use of expressive language, and judgment. Essentially, it controls personality. With each passing year, sometimes beginning as early as the third decade of life, symptoms slowly progress, typically resulting in a misdiagnosis of two distinct illnesses, a psychiatric disorder followed by generalized dementia, loss of executive function, which is more than evident in my mother, often represents end-stage disease. I'm sorry, the neurologist said as she read the results, but I was in fact relieved to have an answer to a lifetime's worth of questions. I immediately thought about Christmas several years prior, when my mother gifted a used red sweater from her basement to my mother-in-law, along with a slice of cake on a paper plate wrapped in tinfoil. The sweater had a tear on one side, and the front boasted a large laughing Santa. It did not prompt me to consider a neurological examination. It only led me to accuse her of being cheap, especially when she denied that the sweater had been worn. A hallmark feature of FTD is the inability to recognize one's own symptoms, leading to the need to rely on close friends and family to separate the behavior from the person. This is the irony of any disease that affects the brain. Patients need their brains, especially the frontal lobe, for self-awareness and to recognize that something is wrong. Their loved ones rely on that part of their own brains to learn not to take things personally. Clinicians, in turn, need to discern abnormal behaviors from otherwise quirky personality traits. None of this comes easily to anyone. Emotions are messy and complicated enough even in the best of times. 
A 2018 survey by the University of Michigan showed that although few older adults reported getting a genetic test for medical purposes, the majority were interested in genetic testing to estimate future disease risk or guide diagnosis or treatment of a current medical condition. Unfortunately, even if physicians want to refer their complex patients to a genetic counselor, Medicare does not cover the cost. Earlier this year, as a board member of the National Society of Genetic Counselors, I spoke to a congressional staffer in New Jersey to gain support for the Access to Genetic Counselor Services Act, H.R. 2144, S-1450. The bill, which was reintroduced in the 117th Congress and has more than 250 signatories, including the American Neurological Association, seeks to recognize genetic counselors as qualified health care providers under Medicare and to allow their services to be paid for by the program. Although genomics and precision medicine continue to make strides in preventative health initiatives, board-certified genetic counselors, the leaders in translating meaningful genetic information to patients, are still not recognized as Medicare providers. Without this recognition, genetic counseling services are only covered for people with private insurance, whereas Medicare patients have to pay directly for the same services. When I counseled Medicare patients at the hospital, I would either charge an upfront flat fee or bill incident to a physician on call, indicating that the physician supervised the provision of genetic counseling. I was used to circumventing the system to help patients, so I should not have been surprised that I had to step in as my mother's health care provider and pay for her genetic testing out of pocket. We are lucky to have had the option. Elderly patients in her situation often do not have the benefit of consulting an expert as part of their routine care. This, of course, is one way in which socioeconomic disparities in health care persist. Many genetic counselors, myself included, have left clinical patient care for private laboratory and industry roles, where the financial model for our work is not dependent on Medicare reimbursement. It is a rising trend that leaves many hospitals without the genetic services our aging population deserves. I know that my mother would support my persistence in trying to understand her disease. She was and continues to be a fighter. She has relayed countless stories of arguing for basic rights as a young woman in India, such as the ability to ride public transportation without being harassed. You cannot let other people tell you what you can and cannot do, she would say. I know that if she could advocate for herself, she would. As she morphs into a stranger, I have to work harder to remember who she used to be. In the midst of some of her worst behaviors, I want her to know that I still see her and love her. Although the lines between her fiery personality and the disease itself are blurred, old journal entries and past conversations are now interpreted in a new light. What about that time she told me not to get her anything for her birthday and then yelled at me after the fact for not getting her anything? That was probably the disease. The time she told my husband that his mother was a horrible cook? That may have just been her personality. Sifting through memories to parse the two feels impossible. 
like trying to untie knots from a delicate chain without breaking the entire thing. Despite a lack of treatment options for FTD, having a diagnosis offers solace. It has enabled me to forgive my mother and myself. It has allowed my father to provide care with more compassion. When I think about my grandfather, I'm overcome with a sense of grief that he did not have the privilege of a diagnosis. He exemplifies the shared tragedy of people with this illness. They fade away without the same level of empathy that other illnesses beget. Their behaviors are at times unbearable and wreak havoc on their loved ones. There are reports of some people with FTD who have sudden personality changes that lead to impulsivity and disregard for the law, and others who suddenly lose the capacity to match words to their meanings, although they can speak fluently. Some develop sudden artistic abilities, whereas other members of a family with the same genetic variant can exhibit hallucinations and paranoia. In many ways, the arc of the disease remains as elusive as those who suffer from it. At the age of 45, I am coming to terms with my mother's future and potentially my own. I have a 50% risk of inheriting the same disease-causing variant for which there is no current treatment. I am overwhelmed by emotions. I am angry that it took us nearly 15 years to figure out the root cause of her symptoms. And I'm frustrated that the U.S. healthcare system does not incentivize clinicians to spend time with their patients or delve into their family histories. It saddens me that mental illness is too often ascribed to a poor attitude or a fault of one's own making. I am grateful that I had the expertise to get my mother the help she needs but unsure about whether predictive genetic testing makes sense for me at this time. I feel relief in knowing that my father has found an FTD caregiver support group. I am reinvigorated about getting the Access to Genetic Counselor Services Act passed, but I am also tired of fighting. Through it all, I have learned that it is not only possible but necessary to hold space for all of these feelings. To the question of whether I have opened Pandora's box by testing my mother's DNA, my answer is no. I have opened a path toward healing and acceptance. I would not have anticipated being on this side of the risk equation, but it only furthers my resolve that genetic medicine needs to be fully integrated into clinical practice. Since learning of my mother's diagnosis, Several relatives have sought genetic counseling or enrolled in clinical trials that aim to arrest progression of disease. This, after all, is the promise of precision medicine. These days, I see my mother as a woman who genuinely loves me and gave me her best, despite having a neurodegenerative disease that robbed us of her character. That alone was worth the pursuit of genetic testing. At one of my recent visits to my parents' home, my mother began spontaneously dancing in her living room to a Punjabi folk song. You have to flow with the rhythm, she told me. As my professional and personal worlds collide, I cannot help but think that she is right. That was Giovanni Nazareth reading her essay, To Uncover My Mother's Genetic Disorder, 
I had to lead the way. Thanks for listening to the Health Affairs Narrative Matters podcast. If you like this episode, tell a friend. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts.